Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Ich verstehe nicht. You're listening to Holy Madness. We are talking about the German Bundestag. You gotta say that more angry. Like like you're trying to really release like a, your inner Oedipus complex. <laughs> Bundestag. Alright, we'll accept it. Okay. There were elections several months ago. And nobody won an outright majority, which is very common, like here in Israel with parliamentary democracies well, one um, of one of the parties which was in angela merkel's coalition previously they lost big time and therefore said this time they would not go into a coalition with her but they would move to they would sit in the opposition and it seems that in the last week and a half uh, merkel's talks to create this coalition between three different parties has more or less collapsed and everyone seems to be somewhat resigned to now, new elections, but they're still talking about possibilities because, after all, the people did vote. So Germany's politics are a bit, I don't want to say in turmoil, but they're certainly, they're, they're certainly, handling, the Vaterland is handling it very well. They're doing business as usual. Merkel is uh, graceful as always. And the president is you know, trying to facilitate some dialogue and coalition negotiations. Yeah, but the divide over this is not a small one, and the election results themselves, which were actually fairly, at the time, they were uh, controversial, seeing a a leader who loses the amount of support that Merkel did is not a simple thing. And, and, not and, just a leader, but she's like, well, she's, she's a great leader. And I don't know enough about German politics to offer an opinion, but I, I do know that the ghost in the machine... And it's not even a ghost, because it's been widely acknowledged uh, in, in, in public. The ghost in the machine is uh, the migrant issue. Germany is foaming at the mouth in both directions over this migrant issue. Migrants and refugees. Depending who you ask, depends on the term you're going to use, correct? Yes, true. So it's not the only issue that led to the breakdown of the coalition, but is one of the maybe three main issues. And it is the elephant in the parlor. Yes, but again, not even just talking about the coalition thing. It's what led to Merkel's uh, drop in support yes. and the destruction of the SPD party that was her coalition partners. We mentioned said we're not even bothering to deal with her anymore. We're going to go lick our wounds in the opposition. This is a hot button issue in Germany, especially, but of course across the entire Western world right. as well. If this were only in Germany right now, then you might look at this issue about the migrants and the other issues involved and downplay the migrant aspect of it and say, listen, it's complex. There are other things going on. But the fact that there's this struggle for national identity now in Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, in Norway, in Maybe in Sweden. It's not clear if Sweden's just going to go belly up or what. <laughs> but, um, and in America and in Britain, it, it, the list goes on. It makes you wonder so, where does Germany fit into this and where is it going? 
even though I'm generally inclined to like Angela Merkel a lot, I would characterize this as willful blindness to open up the borders of Germany and let in all these people. When Germany, to be perfectly frank, already had very serious issues with the Turkish population living there, to open up the borders and admit all these people from Africa and Syria, I think was truly wildly irresponsible. Well, because I, I disagree broadly with the characterization, but we, we need to understand why Germany was doing this in the first place. So here's a little interesting tidbit. How many children does Angela Merkel have? Two. Zero. Zero. How many children does Emmanuel Macron have? Zero. Zero. How many children does Theresa May have? Zero. Zero. How many children does the Prime Minister of Italy, I forgot his name, have? Zero. Zero. Not one European leader has a child. At least Trump has Ivanka, Barron, whoever else. America elects as its head of state fertility gods. <laughs> the person who is elected president is the sexiest candidate. That is how it works. Now you can look. Yes, Trump is sexier than Hillary. Fair point. I would just like to point out that Trump is very clearly a fertility god. Even before any of the you know scandals about his thing with Bush, you know his sexual escapades, if you want to call them escapades, were, were legendary. You know the multiple marriages. He's married to a supermodel. You know he is this representation of virility on some level, and you know. America goes for that, elects that, and and produces babies. I have to say, you know, a few years ago, uh, my wife is from Italy, so we visit Italy pretty periodically, you know, about once every two years. And maybe six years ago, we were in Italy, and we had a great time. We went to the airport at the end of our trip, and uh, I started to, to see kids. It's like, oh. Kids and I started to hear Hebrew. I was like, "Well, oh, oh of course, because we're <laughs> online to, we're on to our fly way home. to fly home." And yeah, all the kids were Israeli. I I realized, wow, we've been in Italy for three weeks, and the number of kids we saw while we were here was trivial. Right. So, so here's the thing: uh, Europe does not have kids. This is a, an article in the Economist. This was published in April. A couple, you know... Not too long ago. Despite an influx of 1.2 million refugees over the past two years, Germany's population faces a near-irreversible decline. According to predictions from the UN, in 2015, two in five Germans will be over 60 by 2050. Wow. And Europe's oldest country will have shrunk to 75 million people from 82 million people. Since the 1970s... More Germans have been dying than are born. Wow. Fewer births and longer lives are a problem for most rich countries. But the consequences are more acute for Germany, where birth rates are lower than in Britain and France. You need to understand, two in five Germans will be over 60 means 
that for every working German, there will be almost one retiree. Yeah. And in a social security paying population... This does not work. It doesn't work at all. You will have people starving in the streets. So... The fact that the Germans have been chasing a policy of migration population replacement is not a surprise. To fault the government for doing that is unfair because the government is not setting a policy as much as reacting to the people's decisions. Italy launched a baby-making program. It hasn't worked, has it? No. The Danes, to their... Uh, internet fame launched a Make Babies for Denmark. <laughs> no, really, it's on YouTube. It's actually a really funny ad. Italy's are funny, too. Well, yeah, but the thing is, they don't work. No. They don't actually work. They're not interested. So if you're running the country and you don't want your entire population to collapse in, in a half a decade, mm-hmm. you need to have replacement bodies. I Okay, I agree. But the people to replace... The Germans who are not being born are not refugees from Syria. Well, who would they be? You don't have lines of people trying to get in. Israelis. Yes, you have a few that think milkies are cheaper in Berlin. That's true. But the large portion of them are not. And by the way, the ones that want to go are always welcomed with open arms. That's true. But, and they just opened a Kolo there, actually. Oh, yeah? Lakewood Yeshiva opened a Kolo in Berlin. Wow. Like two weeks ago, a week ago. And they made a whole big thing about how the Torah has come back to one of its old homes as if this is an accomplishment. Dude, Chabad is huge in Berlin. I daven by them. You see, the thing is, your typical, let's say, New Yorker is not sitting there saying, I'm going to move to Germany. And, and your typical Brit is not sitting there saying, I'm going to move to Germany. Your typical Frenchman, despite life in France being not the, you know necessarily the greatest thing in the world, is not moving to, to Germany. You don't have a big pool of applicants, so you got to take who wants to come. And you hope, like hell, that you can bring them up to speed and adjust them to life there and absorb them, for lack of a better word. It's easy to blame them for something being short-sighted, but I'm not sure they have a choice. Because, you know, a far more short-sighted thing would be to say, forget it, we give up. I hear it. That's a deep point. I'll, I'll go a step further. Same article says like this. If Germany is a warning for others, its eastern part is a warning for its west. If it were still a country, East Germany would be the oldest in the world. Hmm. Nearly 30 years after unification, the region still suffers the aftershock from the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 when millions mostly young, mostly women, fled for the West. Those who remained had record low birth rates. Kids not born in the 90s also didn't have kids in the 2010s. It's an echo of an echo, says Frank Swiatchny. I am definitely butchering his name. Mm -hmm. From the Federal Institute for Population Research, a think tank in Weisbaden. Weisbaden. The East's population will shrink from 12.5 million in 2016 to 8.7 million by 2060, according to government statistics, Saxony-Anhalt, the state to which Bitterfeld-Wolfen belongs, is ahead of the curve. 
just to bring in why they're talking about Bitterfeld Wolfen, Bitterfeld Wolfen has seen its population plummet from 75,000 in 1989 to 40,500 today. Oh, man. Even after administrators tore down blocks of flats and cut floors off others, skeletal remains of buildings still await the wrecking ball. Nearly wow. one building in five is empty. Two-thirds of kindergartens and over half the schools have closed since 1990. The number of pupils finishing secondary school has fallen by half. Wow. The country's imploding. Yes. So it's not crazy for a government to react, to do what needs to be done. This is not just a local German problem. Why don't they import some Indians? India seems to have lots of people, more and more highly educated people, more cut out for the German economy with more of the skills that are needed. Most Indians that want to leave want to go to the U.S. You're not going to Germany. You'll do business in Germany. But that's something that Germany could develop. I understand Munich and the southern part of the country is great for industrial stuff. But Germany is an information economy waiting to happen. Or it could be. Perhaps. Perhaps not. Germany has a need for many different reasons to have full employment. Germany penalizes large companies. Germany doesn't want an Uber or a Microsoft. They want 50 smaller, family-held companies. So if you're looking to conquer the world, you're not looking to do it from Munich. You're looking to do it from Silicon Valley. That didn't stop certain people. (laughs) (laughs) Obligatory Jew joke. Anyway, the point is, yes, there are many different things that they could do, but this is something which touches on the German need to prove that they're not the Germans of old. Okay, so that's that's where I was coming from with this move to, to bring in all these migrants, too. Mm. That, at least in a rhetorical sense, everything is not framed in pragmatic demographic term, terms like you were pointing out, which is shocking. I, I knew that there was a reproduction issue. I didn't realize it was that severe. But everything has been framed in moral terms, we have to help these people, et cetera, et cetera. And it struck me as the kind of willful blindness that I see as exemplified by Gedalia, who was the king of Judea at, after the destruction of the temple, the first temple. He was not the king. He was the governor. Okay, yes. he, was, he was the governor. And, okay, so so in a similarly similarly reactionary manner... Germany must be the antipode to the Nazi nationalism, which eventually, at the end of the war, threw all resources into destroying the Jews. And therefore, Germany will drag all of Europe into providing for foreigners as if they were Germans or Europeans, even if the opposite policy is also a dead end for European nations. So my point is, Germany is trying to prove that they are not Nazis anymore. Right. I visited Berlin. I hated the city, but I loved the people. And in order to prove that you're not a Nazi anymore, instead of being raw, the fatherland, you're going to say, raw, universalism. There is no father. There is no unique land. Everybody, come, no borders, etc. And it leads to destruction. Not necessarily on the same scale, not necessarily the same kind, not necessarily the same level of gruesomeness, but perpetuates the destruction by going to the opposite extreme. 
But this is Gedalia, because what happened? The temple was destroyed because of Lashonara. How do you translate that into English? Um, evil e- speech. It e- really, it doesn't really translate. The speech of evil. It's, in essence, taking information and warping it around an agenda. So the temple's destroyed because of this. Now, somebody comes to Gedalia and says, Hey, your close friend Yishmael is plotting to kill you. And Gedalia says, Whoa, don't tell me any of this Lashon Hara. Uh, and later, of course, Ishmael comes and kills him. It turned out to be true. But so what What was the mistake? He couldn't separate out the information from the p- potential agenda. You know, oh, you just want to slander Ishmael. Okay, that's possible that he just wants to slander Ishmael. But you might also be getting valuable information here. Such as you, you might actually have a threat on your life. Right. So this doesn't need to impact your relationship with this guy. You can still love him. You just need to take the proper precautions, given that this information could be correct. Um, so Yishmael goes and he kills Gedaliao and he kills other people. He kills more than 80 people in all. Massacre. And Yermiao, Jeremiah, has an amazing comment on the whole episode. So the, the cistern into which Yishmael threw all the corpses of the men that were killed by the, by the hand, hand of, of Gedaliah. They were killed by the hand of Gedaliah. They were killed by the hand of Gedaliah. Yishmael might have been the one to pull the trigger, so to speak. But Yirmiyahu's point, Jeremiah's point. Uh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. The whole thing is set up because of Gedaliah's perspective. Had he listened it. to the information right. he was given. Yishmael just walked into a situation that was ripe for this kind of breakdown. Gedaliah was going to the opposite, opposite extreme. He says, Beta Mikdash was, the temple was just destroyed because of Lashon Hara. Now you're coming to me with Lashon Hara. I won't hear it at all. And because of his reaction to it, instead of responding to it with some depth of thought, he he's unable to do the bearer, the clarification that's needed in order to intelligently respond to the situation. So here's the thing. I can see why it seems that they're, you know, they have to prove to each other and themselves that that they're not, uh, they're not, you know, we're not the same Germany and we're not, we're not the Nazis. I, I'll grant you that. I'm willing to if grant it. If it were it. just about demographics, if it were a calculated decision, we need to do something about the population and about economic production and all of those sorts of things, then you find an intelligent way to integrate these people into your population. Do it like Norway. So it's funny you bring up Norway, but I find them to be just as reactionary, if not more so, than what you're saying that the Germans are. This is an article in The Spectator. The the intro to the article says it all. When Angela Merkel invited refugees to Germany in 2015, tearing up the rules, obliging migrants to seek asylum in the first country they arrive in, the consequences were pretty immediate. Over 160,000 went to Sweden, leading to well-publicized disruption. Next door, things were different. Norway took in just 30,000. This year, it has accepted just 2,000 so far. To Sylvie Listhag, the country's young immigration minister, this might still be too much. We have a big challenge now to integrate those with permission to stay in Norway to make sure they respect Norwegian values, she says. Freedom to speak, to write, to believe or not to believe in a god, how to raise your children. Also, she says, what not to do. For example, it is not allowed to beat your children in Norway. So, 
she goes on, she explains that they don't feel the need to solve the world's problems before they take care of themselves. So, Here it is. Yeah. She's referring to refugee camps in Jordan where both Norway and the UK send aid to help those displaced by war. Norway gave twenty-three million pounds to its Jordanian mission last year, almost twice as much per capita as Britain. The cost of helping refugees at home is taken from its foreign aid budget, so as its influx subsides and costs fall, all those savings are used to help refugees abroad. Some £370 million has been transferred so far, with more expected next year. So to Ms. Listhaug, it's not a question of whether to help refugees, but a question of how best do so. We meet after she visited Brandon Lewis, her British counterpart, who gave her a striking statistic. The immigration minister here in Britain said that for the price of helping 3,000 young people here in Britain, he could help 100,000 children in other parts of the world. That's striking. She sees this as a modern way to help asylum seekers, and more practical than the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, which obliges signatories to accommodate anyone with a well-founded fear of persecution. It was an agreement for its time, she says, but when people travel through 20 countries to come to a safe haven, I think people can see that it isn't right. You could have a safe haven in your neighboring country, so why go so far? And these are all arguments which show up in, in the smug, young, right-wing, uh, talking head osphere. This is a... Are we smug, young, right-wing, talking head? I am definitely smug, young, and a talking head, but I don't think I have a wing or any wings. The point is... These are arguments you hear from Tommy Lahren. These are arguments you hear from Ben Shapiro. These are arguments you hear from Tommy Robinson, for that matter, and from every other uh, xenophobic or just even anti-immigration, even if they happen to love people from other cultures. I'm not into the name-calling. I'm really just trying to find a description. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll find that. And, and the truth is, these are fantastic arguments. They're very hard to argue with, but... You'll notice she conveniently glosses over Norway's population uh, issues. And Norway, the the Norway birth rate. Here, this is beautiful. This article is dated April 12th, 2017. So again, we're talking a couple months ago. The local.no, that's a Norwegian local news site. Norwegian birth rate decreases for seventh consecutive year. And it says, birth rates of 2.1 per woman are needed to keep population numbers constant. In Norway, the figure is now down to 1.71, having Ooh. dropped every year since 2009. The average age of first-time parents of both genders is also increasing, Ooh. according to figures released by Statistics Norway. To be fair, that's not the, this is not the purview of the immigration minister. But it's a little short-sighted to have an immigration policy that doesn't do this because at some point Norway will simply run out of people or at least of working age people and they'll have the same population crunch that someone else does 1.7 as far as Europe goes is average yeah. France is lower uh, other other uh, other parts of Europe are, are lower as well uh, the Hungarians are down to less than one I believe really yeah yeah uh, the last time I was looking I think the numbers are from 2015 the Hungarian birth rate let me rephrase that. The the Magyar birth rate, mm-hmm. ethnic Hungarian ethnic birth Hungarians. rate. Who else Exclude, is in excluding immigrants? Uh-huh. The yeah. ethnic Hungarian We're birth rate was 0.88 children per woman. Wow. Right. So so sure they're they're fantastic arguments, but they don't give the country a real footing. To address its real issues. We we spoke last week about the courage needed to look at something in the face 
and recognize it's a dead end. And I think both sides of this argument are dead ends. I think if you want to close your borders down, unless you're a growing population country, then you're you're not it's not going to end well. And if you want to keep your borders open, it's also not going to end well. Let's actually pause for some station identification and commercials. You're listening to Holy Madness, the premier. Organic. Not tested on animals. Gluten-free. Zero calorie. Safe. Hypoallergenic. Means tested. Consensual. Kosher. Matriarchal. Antimicrobial. LGBTQ friendly. Anti-manspreading. Diversity friendly. Culturally appropriate. Hate crime free. Intersectional. Socially constructed. Podcast. Available at your local farm-to-table neighborhood cooperative supermarket. And we're back. So, where we are at. We've until now been discussing the political aspects of the European immigration and demographic situation specifically in regards to Germany, and we used Norway's uh, closed borders and helping refugees or immigrants further away before they get there approach as an illustrative counterpoint to Germany's open border solution to the issue. We've been speaking on the political plane, but there's an elephant in the parlor. And so on one hand, we have population collapse, and on the other hand, we have moralistic reaction, fleeing the Nazi ghost. And both of these things, I believe, point to a deep confusion or washout of identity. Okay. So I'd like to read a quote from a brilliant article, another brilliant article, published by David Goldman. This one, uh, fairly recent. In Standpoint magazine. This is uh, the second to last paragraph in the article. I should say first that AFD is the nationalist party in Germany that is ascendant now. AFD stands for Alternative for uh, Deutschland. So he writes, recently I spoke with the regional leader of the AFD, professor of philosophy without an iota of racial bias. The AFD sought to preserve German culture, he told me, against the threat of unlimited immigration. If he were Germany's education minister, I asked, what would he do for German culture? The question surprised him, and after some thought he offered that he might revive the old German system of classical education. Much as I think classical education desirable, it seems a thin gruel to offer a country still traumatized by the brutality of defeat and the guilt of Nazi genocide. Germany had the misfortune to worship itself in the past, and in consequence, most Germans today have no access to the sacred. They do not know how to begin to ask the relevant questions. Okay, so that's a pretty fair summation of what we were talking about before, where Germany has this almost psychological need to open up its borders to prove to itself and uh, each other that they're not the Germany of old. We, we raised that before. Yes, correct. But this goes further because 
what Goldman is pointing out here is that the reaction of needing to open up the borders follows from not having a real conception of identity, which he identifies with the sacred here. Why don't you take us back to the beginning of the article? These are all manifestations of what is commonly called the identity crisis of the West, but might better be termed the West's struggle with the sacred. By sacred, I mean that which endures beyond our lifetime and beyond the lifetime of our children, the enduring characteristics that make us unique and will continue to distinguish us from the other peoples of the world, and which cannot be violated without destroying our sense of who we are. The sacred is what a country's soldiers are willing to die to protect. Unless there is something for which we are willing to die, we will find nothing for which we are willing to live. What was powerful to me in, in reading those words, when you talk about things that are worth dying for and, and things that are worth living for, you're talking about narratives which both subsume any individual life, but it also gives it a place within history. To be a Jew is to continue the journey of Abraham, who walked out of Ur Kazdim. To be an American is to continue the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And our little insights and accomplishments both advance those goals, and in turn, are part of the original. But today, we live in an epoch that self-defines as being post-historical, as absurd as that sounds. And by that definition, societies are no longer defined by shared loves and goals, as per Augustine, but shared locations. What was so absurd to us when we were talking before, and, and what seems so absurd to the casual listener, is that Germany isn't acting like a people. They're just acting like a locality. Is that right? Is Germany acting like a locality? Yes, because there's no, there's no grappling with the question of what does it mean to be German in the first place. Ah, I see what you're saying. Look, we, we live question. in a country. Hmm. This, is, this is a great point. We live in a country which is built on immigration. It, it, it has increased tenfold in 70 years. And, and the reason it's and been able... to have a good birth rate, but it's not just because... Right. Of <laughs> but the reason it's been able to do that is because there's literally a ministry of absorption that gets immigrants on their feet to be able to be part of the society here. And the country as a whole both subsumes the immigrants into what we call somewhat sarcastically between the two of us is Israeli culture. And at the same time, Israeli culture is open enough that it allows itself to be uh, shaped by all these people that are coming through it. Redefined by each new wave of... Right. But, but that's because as a country, we're grappling with the issue, what does it mean to be Israeli? Yeah. And what seems so absurd to the casual listener is that this, Germany's not doing that. This is what we were saying when we were discussing this a second ago. That was your original question. So if Germany has a demographic decline, is the answer to import Syrian refugees? Is that going to help? Is that going to advance Germany another generation? 
And like we said then, no, it won't. What I had pointed out to you kind of in a contrarian way was, sure, but the Germans don't have a choice. There's a lack of bodies. What we're hitting on here is why there's a lack of bodies. Yes. And, ah, and in saying. their answer to solving their demographic problem is the root of why there is a demographic problem. They're acting like a locale. There's a group of humans that are in a space, and we need to govern this space for the humans here. But it's a very postmodernist approach because if existence precedes essence, then everybody's just going to define who they are, or the nation is defined ad hoc, or there's a identity just disintegrates. That, that's what's happening. Yes. There, what does it mean to be German today? I don't think the Germans have, have, have a clue what it means to be German since the end of World War II. The that's... truth is, there wasn't a World War I and a World War II. There was a world war with a 21-year uh, seventh-inning stretch so that they could restock their armies. Yeah. So whatever went out with 1945 was never really replaced. It's not surprising that the Germans have chosen to replace it with this kind of, you know, kumbaya, let's respect everyone and be nice to everyone and see we've really changed because there's just nothing there that has any kind of self-definition at all other than well we're not that and here's the thing i'm not sure what it means to be german i'm not german but i do know that at least in our people's history most times we've had some kind of cataclysmic uh, collapse we turned inwards and we reassessed what does it mean to be israel and with doing that we wound up redefining everything that came beforehand. It's not an accident mm. that all the golden ages of Torah creation are always when everything's going to hell. So the... the there has the, to be a redefinition of everything before in order to integrate the national tragedy. Yeah. And in doing so... Here, the, the perfect example is, is literally all our holy books... The, the prophets are compiled at the, the era where the first temple is falling apart. The Mishnah is compiled in the, the era the second temple is falling apart. The Gemara, the Talmud, is compiled in the era of political upheaval where the, the Roman Empire is collapsing, the rise of the, um, the, rise of the uh, Arab uh, invasions coming in from the south, you have the Persian Empire on its last legs, yeah. and everything is, is all in flux over there, and out pops this the, the Talmud. You see it also with Maimonides. Absolutely. Oh, this is amazing. You even see it within the, the Chumash, within the, the five books of Moses. The Brit Chadasha of Pechukotai, the, the reestate. The Torah is oh, absolutely. Every time Greek. something goes wrong, you now have this a, period of 
reintegration. Absolutely. So, so that's the thing. I, I don't know what it means to be German, but but I, I think that what we're seeing. Why don't you tell them? <laughs> because I don't know, and I'm not saying that I have the answers. I don't, but I think that what we're seeing is really just the last gasps of a society that is just a society. It's not a people anymore. This is something I've thought long and hard about because my grandparents would have given a kidney for another passport. Mm. Instead, they wound up in Siberia. And You and, can only get so many passports that way. Well, right. <laughs> But so I I married a, a, a girl with French citizenship and I was all excited. I said I'm going to get myself a French passport, and she was like, "Why? Because you never know, you know, because I'm Polish. You never know." Those of you who know from Shlomo Kalbach are definitely going. You never know, <laughs> Galiziana. Yeah. So, but but you know, and and. The thing is, that's not what it, I, I wouldn't be French if I got the passport. No, you would not be French. I wouldn't know the first thing about what it means to be French. But but it does mean something You're to be French. You're almost the anti-French. I think if I were to put you in France, the moment you like brushed shoulders with somebody in the street, you would mutually annihilate. <laughs> <laughs> Matter and antimatter. But but here here's the thing. This is what I mean by this. Because I, I wouldn't be French with a passport, a French passport. Not because I wouldn't be a French citizen. I would be. But because France is not a space between lines on a map. The French are a people hmm. with a culture and a history and a philosophy. In fact... Quite a few. They're almost a city with farms. In in the soccer world, you're right. This is beautiful because you're hitting on something that's really important. The cultural capital of France is Paris. But France wasn't a monolithic France until far more recently than most people realize. Ah, well, that's true for a lot of Europe. Yes, a hundred percent. And we watch it devolve all the time, such as what happened in Catalonia mm, and yeah. what the north of Italy, Lombardy, is trying to pull off and and well, uh, every separatist movement out there. They're freaked out by Catalonia right now, I think. Yeah, but they have all the money. So well, so do Catalonians, that's true. So today you would think of, of France as a city and, and, and some farms, but a Frenchman wouldn't. Because he's still a, a Breton, he's still a, a you know he's he's from Bordeaux. Heck, some of them are Basque, and they don't believe in any of this. <laughs> Let's put it like this: Europe is a place that not just in the Middle East, but amongst themselves, drew lines on maps and thought that it would create realities. Yeah, you get that in the. Poland, Czechoslovakia kind of area. But you get that, here's the thing, you get that in the UK, you get that in France, you mean like you get in... that in Germany, you get that in Italy. Go talk to somebody who sees himself as Catalonian, 
who sees himself as Flemish, okay. who sees himself as Welsh. You're saying that local identity is stronger than we give it credit for. It's the it's pretty much the only real identities they have. Uh-huh. Going back, remember where we, this all came from. What does it mean to be German today? It doesn't, but it means something to be Bavarian. Okay. It means something to be um, Berliner. Only if you're JFK. <laughs> That's not true. Ich bin ein Berliner. The black and orange, uh, you know, the the, the tricolor flag. And the Deutschland, all this stuff, none of that existed. It worked for a time. And when Europe was coagulating into quote-unquote super states, it worked for a time. It was a way to unite all these uh, different and distinct little localities. But it doesn't work anymore. I guess I'm used to Italy, in a way. Because when I go to Europe, I go to Italy. And in Italy... Each of the regions is so distinct. To, to be Italian is this sort of, like, yeah, we all stand under the same umbrella. But there's no pretense. There's no... There, it doesn't mean anything. Right. But I guess I always saw Italy as an extreme case of that. And other European nations as relatively united so when i think of german factions i think of like religious schema uh, schismatics you know so where you know you travel to the other side of the mountain and because you have this isolated pocket there they can have their own schism so it's this place of you know extreme schismaticism but i had a sense that you know those germanic tribes at some point reached some kind of unity some kind you know what's a perfect example precisely because they're the only ones that got it right the swiss Hmm. there are four sections to switzerland that all speak four different languages yeah that's amazing and they are all they they're literally like like you know, almost like states in terms of the United States. Mm-hmm. There are four complete, almost completely autonomous sections that do their own thing, but they have this federal government which they tolerate for the benefits that it brings, and have a wonderful talking about you know federal, the original incantation of the United States. Same idea. Nobody trusts you know for the first thirteen years there wasn't really a federal government. Right. The Swiss work almost the same way. Hmm. And and the culture in Switzerland is very much built on responsibility instead of rights. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason it works. There never was this idea of we're going to make this super state that's going to subsume all of your identities into this nationalistic thing. Never had that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Germans did and the French did and the Brits did and... Italians did, and everybody, you know, all these these states in Europe, this is their story and why they burned themselves out. And if it hadn't been for the Marshall Plan, they'd still be a smoking hole in the ground now. I was in Grand St. Bernard in northern Italy, and I accidentally wandered into Switzerland and and tried to pay for something and discovered that they didn't take euros. (laughs) (laughs) But they were very polite about it, I'm sure. In this particular case, not so much, but they probably had that happen to them a lot. The point being that they will not be subsumed by 
that supranational entity. But let's take it one step further now. Because Europe is not just, well, let's say Western Europe, is not just Germany, Switzerland, Italy, France, England, uh, Spain, Portugal, etc. Conrad Adenauer was a very wise man. Who was that? Conrad Adenauer was one of the first prime ministers of Germany following World War II. Okay. So, so Adenauer is a fascinating man because he realized that Europe is doomed as it is. Hmm. He kicked off the EU. Okay. We look at the EU as being a relatively modern thing because to the average non-European, the EU only dawned on our consciousness with the euro. But the groundwork to create the European Union was laid in the 60s. I guess I see it as like the local UN for Europe. But it's not what it is. Hmm. And in fact, it's why it's engendering this massive kickback in all these countries now. Because what the U... Well, there was this moment where it went from being this sort of loose union to being this thing with legislative and judicial power. That's the thing. It was always designed that that way. Hmm. The EU was meant to turn all of Europe into a mirror image of what all these super states were for all the little micro states that were in them to begin with. Hmm. So basically you have a still feudal Europe in some sense. Exactly. Which is trying to turn itself into something other than into nested feudalisms. And all it succeeds in doing is creating nested layers of more feudalism mm-hmm. until it reached the point where a small majority of Britons said, we're out. They didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> but <laughs> well, but, but that's why. But that's why they did it. Mm-hmm. Because they reached the, the, the way... Look, the Leave campaign was brilliant because they framed it exactly on the issue that we're discussing. Are you British or are you European? Who are you? Hmm. And what does it mean to be that? Uh, So the more local you can make it, the more compelling the sense of identity will be, in that space at least. Like You can more easily say what it is to be a Brit than what it is to be a European. For sure. And you can more easily say what it is to be a Mancunian... Yeah. Then you can to say what it means to be a Brit. Look, in our instance, I can far more easily say what it means to be a, a resident of Ramon and Atsiv than it is to be a resident of Jerusalem. And you can definitely, we joke all the time about how, you know, when, you, when you're driving on Highway 1 from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and it comes out of the mountains mm-hmm. and you hit that flat stretch where it widens to three lanes, yeah. there should be passport control there because you're in a different country. Yeah. But but that's part of the thing. To be a Jerusalemite or a Tel Avivian is more distinct than Israeli. And to be Israeli is far more distinct than Middle Eastern. And Middle Eastern is far more distinct than citizen of the world. Here's the thing, to, to kind of wrap all this up. When, when I was talking about, you know, how things to live for and things to die for are narratives that subsume your life and give it a place in history. Place is a very powerful thing. We relate to places differently. 
If you bring a bunch of high-powered lawyers into a kindergarten, they will act like children. Okay. When you return yeah. home, mm-hmm. you revert to some of your teenage behaviors. Home, your parents' house. Place affects us. I just experienced this very powerfully. I went back to the United States uh, two months ago. And I found myself on the FDR drive. I was driving home. Is that a New York thing? Yeah. And I was driving at 30 miles an hour. And it felt like I was traveling at a good speed. And it occurred to me that if I drove at 30 miles an hour on a highway in Israel, I would be slapping my steering wheel. Why are we going so slow? In the streets of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I drive at 20 miles an hour. In the streets of Jerusalem, I don't. There's something, and, and it's, it's almost instinctive. You react to the, the place and the culture Absolutely. and the life within it differently. Absolutely. Over here, things are very fast-paced. It's not like Manhattan where you have to create the sense of gravitas to your life, but just people here are engaged in living. And you're going from place to place, and, and you got to get there. Hmm. Whereas, you know, where you're from, Virginia, and my mom, this happened to my mom once in, in rural Pennsylvania. She was at the traffic light in the town. There was only one. <laughs> and she had dropped something. So she put her car in park, and she leaned down to get it, and she finally picks it up. And it occurred to her that it must have taken at least a full 60 seconds to do it, which means the light must have turned green and red again. No one honked. Oh, wow. People just sat there. Accepted it. No, not just exhibitors. Like, what's the rush? Well, that's Where are it, you going? That's how it is today, <laughs> but only because everybody's looking at their cell phones. Except for that one guy who, like, glanced up at the right moment and he's honking while he's texting. But I want to go back to identity. The question, who am I, or what is it to be an Israeli or an American, whatever it is, that form of the question has always bothered me. Any answer given to that kind of question has always struck me as inadequate. There's another question, which I see actually as a better form of the same question, and it is Hayeka. Where are you? And in answering that question, you're able to give over a real sense of identity. Tell me where you are. And now I understand who you are. Tell me who you think you are, and all I understand are your self-delusions. So apply that to what we're discussing. Because the migrant coming off the the train can tell you he's in Leipzig. The migrant coming off the train can tell you he's in Leipzig. Now ask him, what does it mean to be in Leipzig? What is Leipzig? Where is this for you? What is this space for you versus, you know, what is Leipzig for somebody who grew up here and grew up here listening to Bach? So what I'm driving at, where is not only spatial, it's temporal. We as humans, as much as the last, let's say, 25 years, we have tried to pretend that we do not live within history we do not live 
within the worlds that we inhabit, but we do. And all these distinctions, the neighborhood, the city, the, the country, the religion, the sports team you root for, all these, all these things, they're not arbitrary things. Why do people experience these things as arbitrary? Because in most places today they are. That's where, that's where I was going to go with this. That's terrifying. Yes. Here's, here's the example that I wanted to, to illustrate that point. We live in a world of designer lifestyles. The word lifestyle is terrifying. As if a life mm-hmm. is something you could style. Mm-hmm. Where, where you have personas. Where you have characters that you can wear like clothing. I, I've, I've shared this with you before. Mm-hmm. In my line of work, as a social worker works primarily with teenagers, I find that a very powerful question in getting to figure out where this person is, in, in the sense that you used it, is how do you see the narrative of your life as a, as a book, a movie, a video game, or a sitcom. Because these are all very, very different forms of narrative. Mm-hmm. Books are driven by character development. They're driven by the narrative arc. But there's a crisis. There's an accomplishment. There's an achievement. The person at the end of the book is not the person that was at the beginning. A movie is like a book, but it misses all the stuff that goes on past your eyes Hmm. all the descriptors all the thoughts to put that in a movie you either have to have somebody speaking off stage Mm -hmm. or you have to set up your set in a way that someone can process with their eyes the words the thoughts that the writer could put in so it's also much more shrunken down. They don't. It's not about the development of the person as much as the story of the event. You get a very powerful sense of space in a movie, uh, or atmosphere. Yeah. Look, there, there, are, there are things that movies do that books can't as well. But in terms of a personal narrative, somebody who sees their life as a movie is much more shrunken down. Mm. The plot is is you don't get Anna Karenina in a in a, in a movie. Hmm. You know, you don't get, uh, you can't make the Bible into a movie. You could try. It won't People work. Have. They have tried, but it doesn't work. A TV show, a sitcom, there is no character development. The situations change, but the characters are static. Yeah, that's the point. Right. And in a video game, there's no story at all. There's just what needs to be done. Hmm. That's where you start getting into things like cheat codes. Hack your life. But this is something that people Mm. talk about all the time. Every one of these godforsaken motivational speakers. Hack your life. That's the most cheapening thing you could possibly do. Find a cheat code to life. So you don't have to live it. But it's only possible to think that way if there is no story to your life. And because Western society has lost its story. How many Americans see themselves as the next chapter in the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? Uh, So 
I think that starting after World War II for Europe and in America after Vietnam, you have this collapse of sense of mission. And not just collapse, but it becomes anti-mission, anti-becoming. We cannot become because becoming is too dangerous. People get ideas, people have these values that are going to force them or compel them into lines of action which lead to war and death and destruction and it's too much we can't do this anymore we are not going to become we are not going to have a path everybody just needs to accept everybody else and we will be it's funny you say it that way because i think it was very different for europe and america i think what you're describing is very european i think in america it wasn't so much that oh no this is dangerous i think it's just oh no this isn't fun Potentially, I, you it doesn't the, make me happy. You see the rise of that starting with the beatniks after World War II, and it continues with the hippies in conjunction with Vietnam. It's the anthem is Imagine by John Lennon. You know, imagine there were no wars. In order to do that, you have to get rid of all the distinctions, all the things that you would fight for. So in the name of safety you eliminate values you're left with sort of what you'd want to call meta values maybe you know, we value people therefore we are not going to tell people how they need to be well what happens if how people happen to be happens to be contrary to life then you're stuck that's very much where the dividing line between right and left is today in the west in general that's also the, I'm not the first person to point this out, this is the, the great paradox in, in feminism today, where you have a large number of feminists standing up and defending regimes which are terribly oppressive to women. It's weird. Not any weirder than Jeremy Corbyn's version of leftism in the UK today, for example. No, it's the, it's the same basic phenomenon. Yeah. There is something that bothers me we've been skirting around the edges of it so goldman talks about needing to live for something believe but he doesn't approach the question of whether all these somethings for which you would live are equal what makes something you'll die for worth dying for that's a question that not only defines different nations but different depths of nationhood different levels of existential depth how much does your nation matter in the grand scheme of things? Are you connected to something that's real? Or is the thing that you're living for something that doesn't matter so much? I've always flippantly pointed out that it's very easy to find something. You know, people always talk about, well, you haven't started to live until you found something to die for. I've always pointed out that you've never found a reason to die until you found something to live for. Otherwise, it's just not much different than you know the cat that got run over on the road there's no tragedy to a death that wasn't a life oh yeah that's a point that's totally obscure today too you know, any death is a tragedy who says every death is a tragedy on some level they are i think it's that they only look at that one level that's the problem only if you see the unique potential in that life I think what we're dancing around is this. As a species, 
we've come to a point where we value life. Just because something breathes and bleeds, that doesn't require any act of choice. But the engagement in evolving, in change, in growth, requires constant choice. You have to choose to live the kind of life where you will ask and investigate and weigh and throw out and destroy what these values are. More than anything, the counterculture revolution in the post-World War II world destroyed any idea of values. The only value is you are beautiful the way you are. Just be. Right, just be. And, and the idea of becoming, the idea of achievement, struggle, failure, these are things which are not just frowned upon, but today are practically illegal to say. Mm-hmm. That's offensive. I love you just the way you are, and that's it. Right. You're, you're good the way you are. We live in a world today where having values makes you insane. The fact that you will stand for something, you'll say, I think that's wrong. Those are the easiest words to lose your job, to lose your spouse, to lose your neighbors, to be thrown out of your house of worship. This has happened to me. This has happened to you. It's yeah. happened to everyone. This has happened to anyone who's ever taken a stand. The thing is, if you don't take a stand, you're washed away. Whether it's by the migrant tide, whether it's by the changing tides of new paradigms. We live in an entropic universe. Entropy. Exactly. To me, watching this fiasco play out in Europe is just sad. You're watching a people lay down and refuse to live. It's a nation choosing to die. It's heartbreaking to watch. It's even more heartbreaking to watch this from the perspective of a religious Jew. We, with our own almost eternal, timeless perspective. Uvacharta v'chayim l'man Choose life so that you may live. Those words are what Moshe, Moses, uh, says as more or less his grand finale to his big speech. That's uh, the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Tvarim. And it sounds, to, to, to build up to this big point and then say something as patently, tautologically absurd as choose life so that you may live. Obviously, there's, there's, Moshe's trying to make a point. Choose. It has to be a choice. If you just sit and watch life go by, it will, and it will leave you behind. There is no real life without choice. Choice.